Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Today, we are excited to have you tuning in. Our guest is a listener of the show, Joseph. He joined us previously in episode number 364 as part of our Before the Hunt series, where we talk to you guys, listeners of the show, about hunts that you had planned for the fall, and now we're doing the follow-up to those hunts. For Joseph specifically, he was going on a doll sheep hunt in the Brooks Range of Alaska. We speak with Joseph about how that hunt went, what he learned, and much more. As you'll hear, it was successful, in fact, successful beyond his expectations. It's a fun story, and there's some great entertaining information and helpful information to pull from this conversation. As always, guys, if you have any questions for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message, and you can use whatever device you're currently listening to this podcast on to leave us an audio message for a future Monday Minute Q&A episode. Hit pause and do that right now if you have a question, then come right back. Here's this conversation with Joseph. Joseph, welcome back from Alaska, man. Thank you. It's good to be back. Kind of miss it already, but it's good to be back. <laughs> this is the the first after story that we are recording as part of the series that we did in the in the summer of the before and after the hunt. Um, your prior episode before your hunt was uh, episode number three hundred and sixty four. So, if folks are catching this conversation um, and maybe didn't hear this before the hunt story um that's episode 364 and you can go check that out but man uh got an email from you when you got back from your trip you had a a wildly successful trip for sure and we'll dive into a lot of that i wanted to start here though joseph and when we recorded with you uh and told the before the hunt story i think think that was like maybe early June somewhere in there if I recall correctly um so you had another couple months call it a little more than that I think between when we chatted with you and then when your hunt started so I'm just like let's start here what changes or like what was what was that those couple months like really between our conversation and the hunt like because I I can think of some things like I think you were debating what boots to bring still maybe some changes in your training um, so just kind of anything that comes to mind from from that window of time leading up to the hunt. Yeah. So I think when we stopped talking, I just reassessed my physical training that I was doing. And I pretty much cut almost all of my upper body lifting out and went straight to pretty much only pack workouts, which may or may not have been a mistake because um, I pretty much did three to five days a week of going up and down stairs, up and down hills or side hilling each day with 40 to 60 pounds, um, which I believe got me in better shape. But what I started to notice closer to the end of July was my knees. I was probably putting way too much stress on my knees. So I mm-hmm. changed what I was doing. I, I knew I was getting closer to where I needed to be doing, you know, fasted early morning workouts before the heat for an hour to three hours, something like that. And, uh, it was definitely getting closer. Um, but then started reading on the forums that, uh, 
all the sheep in Alaska were dead. And uh, so <laughs> that was a little depressing. And so I, I started uh, changing my expectations drastically. And I, I, I know we talked about success on the last podcast and just, I wanted to at least have an opportunity at a legal Ram. And so I, I changed that to be my point of success that like, if I, if I can make a stock on a legal Ram and we get on a legal Ram, I will consider it a successful trip. Um, just with what I was reading, um, the flyover reports of just not seeing rams on the mountain, not seeing sheep on the mountain from winter kill. I uh, I was just trying to curb expectations and just enjoy the trip in and of itself. Mm. Yeah, I think I was a very similar mindset, right? Going into it, just, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was checking out some of those reports as well and like purposely not saying anything to you, Steve, because you even had an earlier hunt. I'm like, God, I hope Steve's not seeing all this. <laughs> it, it means anything in the sense of like, just because you read it on the internet doesn't mean it's true, but there was definitely right. a lot of negativity in the Alaska sheep hunting community going into this season for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, uh, and I think a lot of it's justified, but no, uh, yeah, you I guys both had great hunts. <laughs> yeah, we did. Do you know how your, um, outfitter did as far as like other clients um he had very high success rates with people who didn't quit um and i i visited with him about that in past years and some details and he he pretty much said as long as people hunt the full hunt show up in shape and can shoot their success rates are wildly high but it's i guess it's super common for people to quit on sheep hunts or just to miss so this year they did pretty well we uh, um Dwayne with, you know, our outfitter, I believe they ended up going five for six, like um, where we were at. So they did yeah, exceptionally well. Yeah. That's incredible. I don't want to just focus on gear by any means, Joseph, but listening back to our previous conversation, um, I know two things at least stood out to me. You sound, you sounded like you were leaning in a certain direction with a rifle, but weren't fully decided. Uh, and then I think similarly on similarly on boots. And so I'm curious what you ended up taking there um, for those two specific items. Cause uh, in the first conversation, those were not fully set in stone. Yeah. I uh, had the crispy Brickstools. I'd already worn them around hiking a bit. So they were non-returnable. So I ordered a whole bunch of other crispies just to try them on. And I, I was having the same issue with all of them, which was a pain on the right side of my arch or the outside of my arch, the lateral side. And so I, I spent a bunch of time hiking, relacing my boots in different ways. And I fixed that issue, um, which was kind of the biggest issue I had aside from that they were so stiff. And then when I started doing a bunch of side hilling, I realized that the ankle support in the boots was probably going to be necessary. I couldn't go back to the light hikers or tennis shoes I wanted to use. Um, so I decided to just stick it out with the Brickstools, wear them three to four days a week, and just make sure my feet were broke into the boots um, as best as possible. And I, they did really well for me. The only major blister I got was from my sock rolled up on the top of my foot and just rubbed it raw, but that wasn't not a, that was not a big deal. And then on the rifle, I think I told you I was shooting 120 grain Barnes TTSXs. I don't know if a bolt came loose in my gun or what, but my groups just got terrible. And so I, I went back to the kind of tried and true 143 grain ELDX, which 
I don't love as a bullet because it always grenades for me on everything I shoot, but it kills stuff and it's super accurate. So I went out to the range a couple more times, reset zero, and I just decided to take the Creed more because I was still getting better groups with it than the, the short mag. Did you do a specific leasing technique on the boots? I know you said you like tested different options. Like what did you find that worked for you to fix the issues you were having? Or do you just think that was partially break in? Um, it was, it was definitely lacing. I had to go on both boots, five eyelets up normal lacing. And then I just totally skipped and went straight up the side of the boot for like a lace or two and was not crossing over the top of my foot. Um, what I was doing was over compressing my arch on the top and over tightening the boot. And it was, uh, flattening out my arch on the lateral side of both feet. And just, I, it didn't make sense. I was having the exact same pain in both feet. And so it was, I was just over tightening the boots and really didn't need to be cranking down so hard. Did you play with different insoles at all? I did. I did about three different, I cannot remember what company it's called, but I ended up with the trailblazers. So okay. I think, yeah. Um, Super feet. Yep. Yep. I, I think I did their green, their blue and their black and the trailblazers and uh, the trailblazers were the best for me. So that's the one you've been running, right, Mark? Yeah. And I, I'd never been a fan of super feet before. Like again, like kind of like you, Joseph haven't tried their, like their standard green and blue and like just those colors. But um, every boot I've put those trailblazers in, I've been really happy with them. Yeah. Yeah. I just, um, who had, Oh, is that Christian on the death hike? He had those, the new, like might even be called trailblazer, like adapt Something, hike max. Yeah. yeah it's a different. A, yeah. I think. You're, yeah. You're I know adapt hike max. I know is what like max cushion. I think what that stands for. I've been, I bought a pair of those after that. And that's what I ran, uh, in those, um, Las Sportivas that I did on the sheep hunt and, um, put them in a few other shoes. I've been very impressed with them. Nice. The only thing I'll say is like, I, I followed crispies. Um, I bought their, uh, wax for their boots and I used it on them. I would suggest like, just if you're, if you've already gone outside of any warranty things, just use regular wax. Cause I would walk through the grass with their wax on and just soak the boots immediately, even after following all their procedures and doing all the stuff. Right. Um, I, it just, it felt like it was not actually keeping water out of the boots. So I think like a snow seal or something else would probably maybe soak into the leather better. I'm not sure, but boots still held dry the whole time, but they were soaked almost immediately on the trip. Are those, I can't even remember those like a full grain leather or like a new buck type. Yeah. They're full grain. Yeah. I've had with full grain leather, I've had really, and I honestly haven't worn full grain leather boots in a long time. So it's been a few years, but um, when I did wear them, I had really good luck with Obanoff's um, LP. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a waxy kind of beeswaxy type thing and it's best to put it on warm. But um, anytime I've had full grain leather, that stuff has just performed phenomenal. Yeah, I think I've, I've tried that on some cheaper leather boots and it worked great. And so I was like, you know, I'll follow the manufacturer's recommendation on theirs. And I, I think I'm going to go back to open offs or something else. Cause it's there. It just didn't hold very well. Yeah. Cool. Well, there's some other, uh, some other gear notes that you sent, like how things performed well, or perhaps didn't on the hunt. And maybe we'll get to those later. Uh, but I was just curious on those specific items. Cause they were again, kind of semi question marks when we chatted last, but I mean, take us into the story a bit. Like, I guess uh, to begin with, let's just hit it a little bit chronological, maybe talk about anything notable from 
the flight up there to just the beginning of the hunt? Like, let's just begin to tell the story. Yeah, well, I, I probably didn't bring enough gear uh, as far as like, I, I thought I was going to be landing on an airstrip and then flown directly from that airstrip to the Sheep Mountain airstrip and hunting from there. But there's, they have an actual camp set up with, you know, a couple of wall tents and they've got some, you know, meat tents and things like that and a little cabin there. So we did paperwork, zeroed rifles, um, and everybody started storing their gear that had flown up on the same plane as me. And I just had my backpack and my gun case. I didn't, didn't bring anything else other than that. So I was ready to go. So they shuttled me out to the mountain pretty quick after that. Um, and there were on those planes, there's those shock absorbers or whatever by the wheels. I just thought that was interesting. I didn't realize we'd be like bouncing up the mountain. (laughs) It was, you know, I knew the plane would be small. I knew it'd be tiny little paper plane, but like we, we flew over the landing strip two or three times to make sure everything was kosher to land. And, uh, we literally bounced onto the landing strip and then he drove back off the mountain to get out of there. It was just kind of crazy. (laughs) Like I, I guess that's the expectation up there is that like, it's going to be sketchy, but I was, I was still surprised. Um, but anyway, that was, I called that day zero cause we weren't allowed to hunt that day. And um, that was have been the uh, 20th of August. So I, we land and there's two guys out there. Um, what there is, is there's an older guide who's in his sixties. There's an early twenties guide who's it's probably his last sheep hunt with another guide. So there's kind of a handing off of the torch going on, on this hunt. So I, again, I was just expecting one guide, but there were two and they were, you know, there was some training going on, which was totally cool with me because they were both studs, uh, Mike and Alex. Um, so I visited with Luke a little bit, the pilot and the owner of the business. Um, and then he just kind of flew off the mountain and so we sat down and had some dinner cause it was getting kind of late. And, uh, they're like, Hey, you want to look through the spotter? We've got sheep in the spotter. I was like, awesome. So I sit down and we start looking at about 18 ewes and lambs feeding on the mountainside. I was just, I couldn't believe there were sheep from the airstrip. And I'm like, is that like a mile and a half? And they're like, that's more like three and a half miles. <laughs> it's like, okay, I have no, no idea what's going on. Um, so we're watching them for a bit. We make some cup of noodles and just hanging out. And uh, all of a sudden out of the willows come another group of sheep. And at three and a half miles, they were pretty confident that there was a two legal rams in the group, just with how much mass they had. And of course, I'm just like, well, this is ridiculous. I've been on the mountain for 30 minutes and you guys are saying you've seen we're seeing legal rams. It didn't really make sense. And so I started joking, like there better not be bells on them when we get over there. And, uh, they're like, well, then they started explaining to me that where I was at, one of the previous hunters had hunted for seven plus days and hadn't seen a legal ram. So they were just as shocked as I was. They knew there were sheep in the area, but they weren't, they hadn't seen them yet like the legal rams. So we, we turned in that night because can't hunt that day. So we slept that night, woke up early, loaded up on water and food. Um, and also that evening before, I know I talked about the spotting scope dilemma. I had about 40 pounds of gear without food and water, um, gun and everything, all my stuff. And when we were glassing the sheep through their Swaro, I think it's a 60 power scope, 
you could make out the difference between a U and a Ram. You couldn't tell anything specific, but you could just see how much mass they had. With my Koa 553 on 45 power, I could not tell the difference between U's and Lambs at that distance. And so I just took a couple of recordings and then made the call to just leave that extra five pounds with the spotter and tripod at the airstrip. Certainly those smaller scopes, you know, like you're not going to see a big difference like in a mile, mile and a half. But once you really start reaching out there, those long distances, I made the same mistake on my first sheep hunt. I brought up a Koa 55 and, and it was almost the exact same story. We were glassing from the airstrip at some lambs and ewes. And it was like, yeah, this is basically worthless. Like I'm not backing it. Yeah. It was just an extra five pounds I didn't need. So we, we dumped all the extra weight. They kind of went through my pack to see what extra crap I'd brought that I didn't need. And I think they pretty, pretty quick, pretty quickly realized that like, I really hadn't brought much. And so I made the joke that like, maybe I forgot something important and they didn't think that was very funny. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, So we loaded up tents that next morning, loaded up on food and started hiking. Um, got to the base of where the mountain that we had seen those sheep on and it was fogged in and raining sideways. So, uh, you know, the whole fog thing up there was we don't hike into fog if we can avoid it and we don't spook sheep if we can avoid it. And hiking up there was just going to spook something. So we just threw up tents, slept for, they slept for two hours. I kept peeking out my tent vestibule, <laughs> hoping for the fog to lift because I couldn't sleep. I was too excited. Um, so after about two hours, the fog lifts, we threw tents in the backpacks, went to the top of the mountain, kind of were up in that castle rock. And uh, we kind of figured the sheep were just over the other side. So we peeked over, saw the ewes and lambs at about 2,000 yards or so. And then we kept kind of creeping over this castle rock and eventually saw the rams at 1,600 yards or so, way down the mountain, feeding away from us. Um, so we pulled out the spotter and at that distance, we were able to assess that there were two sickle horns, a kind of a tight full curl ram, and then one really good ram that was broomed on one side and flared out on the other. And he was, he was, you know, for, for where we were at, they were saying he's a stud. So they were pretty giddy and excited. And I just didn't know even what to think at that point. So we watched them for about an hour, shoot down to the willows and they got down in a Creek and were shooting up along some, spine ends where the spine runs into the willows so we watched them for a bit and they kind of assessed that they thought they were going to the back drainage in this little mountain range we were in and so they said we'll gain as much distance as we can um, tonight and so we just kind of hauled butt along the along that spine and we made it there before dark um, threw up tents fell asleep and then the goal the next morning was that they they assumed they'd be feeding up to us. And we just kind of wait up in that castle rock and wait for them to come up the chutes. So we wake up 5, 530, start glassing. Um, and there's just no sheep around, like we're not seeing anything. And we, I don't know if this is seven or eight miles from the airstrip we covered, but we, we're, we're back there, we're glassing, not seeing anything. And then about three to four miles away across on a different mountain, we see five sheep feeding. And so they pull out the spotter and spend quite a bit of time observing them. And um, we all got to look at them. And that one ram was pretty noticeable, even at that distance with how much mass he had, that they were like, there's, 
probably not two sheep that big in this area. So that's our sheep probably doubled back and went up the wrong side of the mountain. And so we hunted out a couple spines where we were at and just started making our way towards them. And pretty much after we'd finished glassing them, the fog dropped back down over those sheep. So we kind of lost them and just didn't really have any other game plan. So we just hauled butt over there. So um, dropped it all the way to the bottom, lost all our elevation, shot up the other side. And uh, I think it took us about seven hours to get to them. And when we got to them, we just peeked over a little ridge there and the sheep were at 370 yards. And I told them my, my max comfortable distance was 400. So they said, well, we're good to go. <laughs> um, Alex went over first because he was kind of taking the lead on the whole calling legality and things. So Alex goes over first with me and he says down to Michael, the sheep are right there. And Michael goes, I know, shoot them. <laughs> and Alex goes, no, you've got to see this. And Michael's like, I've seen it a hundred times. Shoot the ram. <laughs> and so finally Alex got him to come up. We pulled up the spotter, confirmed he was way past for full curl. Um, I decided to settle in and I, I took my binos out of my harness, turned them upside down and kind of cradled my gun in the binos. And got comfortable and I'm like, I'm going to take a dry fire shot. <laughs> Michael's like, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm, I'm going to dry fire to make sure I don't have any nerves or jitters or anything. And he's like, you're not just going to shoot him. <laughs> I'm like, I, I'm like pretty excited at this point. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to dry fire. He's like, okay, whatever. So I, I get ready to dry fire and uh, the wind totally switches and like is blowing straight to them. It was blowing across from us before then you could watch the fog drifting across their faces because they were right at the fog line. The wind swirls, hits the back of our necks, feels like a 20, 30 mile an hour gust blowing to them. So I just jack in the round, hold between my 350 and 400 hash and squeeze the trigger. Ram starts tumbling down the mountain. You know, he loses 25, 50 yards and jack in another round and, um, they said he wasn't hit great. So I shot him again and I was about to shoot him a third time when they're like, no, he'll die. He'll die. And so about 60 seconds later, his nose is in the dirt. All the other Rams are just kind of standing around watching him. And I mean, I was just in shock. I mean, it's only day two of hunting and there's a dead Ram across the Valley and we're, we're high fiving. And I, it was just unreal. It's still unreal that it happened that fast and the way that it did just kind of in shock. That's cool, man. That happened, uh, happened pretty quick in the trip. Yeah, it did. And, uh, you know, we, we got over later on at the airstrip. I kept saying, man, we were so lucky to catch them through the fog and so lucky that they didn't move because we'd never not seen them moving until the last time we saw them in the fog early that second day. And, uh, I was like, it's so lucky they stayed there and so lucky that like we, uh, we were able to see them through the fog and, uh, I was like, it wasn't lucky. We, we caught hauled butt. Like we moved, we, <laughs> we were up early glass and he's like, we, we covered quite a bit more distance than we normally cover in a day. So, uh, he's like, no, we, we hunted plenty hard. Like it wasn't luck. And I was like, well, either way, I'm, I'm stoked. So we go to side hill over to the sheep and we kind of lose them as we're side hilling. And I get so excited that like, I get like 50 yards ahead of Alex and Michael and like, totally lose relation for distance. And I come out like 50 yards above the sheep and they came out right at the sheep. So I kind of 
went down the mountain to them. We took a bunch of pictures and it was just, it was surreal. And of course it starts raining like crazy. It had been raining on and off all day, but it started raining pretty crazy. We drug them down to kind of a flat ish spot and butchered them. Um, which took a while when you're slipping and sliding all over the place. Uh, we got them deboned, butchered, bagged up, and uh, we hauled down maybe another halfway down the mountain to the bottom and found a lightning strike, slept in that because everything, all the wheels had been burned out of that little circle. Um, woke up the next morning. I kind of was like, so what time do you think today we'll be back at the airstrip? And they're like, it'll be two to three days before we're back. I was like, really? I didn't think it was that far. And so like, no, it's going to take a while. So no worries. So I, I took half the sheep, the horns and the uh, cape. Alex took the rest of the sheep and he had most of the water. And then Michael took the ribs and like our breakfast and lunch food. So I, I think they weren't expecting me to carry a bunch of the weight. And so that's why they thought it would take us a while to get out. But um, we lost all our elevation, filled up on water gained our elevation and side hilled out. We were back at the airstrip by like five o'clock on the third day. And so Luke and his dad, Rick, uh, who's also a pilot, they met us at the airstrip right as we were hiking up to it. And we took a bunch of pictures and me and Alex got flown out and uh, Michael spent the night on the mountain again. And we were back in camp on that third night. It was, it was weird. I mean, it was, it was amazing, but it was also just weird that it had all happened so fast. You know, you're, your expectation is just to hope to see a legal sheep. And here you are with a big ram in your hands. That's much bigger than you were hoping for. And uh, I, I don't know. It's just surreal. Is it hard to process like with everything happening so fast? Yeah. Yeah, it totally was. Uh, when we got back to camp, uh, Rick and Laurel are Wes and Luke Tyrell's parents. Um, they were kind of looking at some of the pictures we'd taken and she kind of mentioned that I had RBF in most of my pictures. Uh, and I was, she's like, were you not happy or something? I'm like, no, I was thrilled. I just, I, I couldn't believe I was holding the sheep. Like most of my pictures, I'm not looking at the camera until they asked me to, because I'm just sitting there staring at its head. Like the horns are so big. I mean, their heads are a lot heavier than you think they're going to be. And they're just beautiful. Like they're, I, I just, I don't know there's so much character in their horns and he was so cool and tipped out. It was just, it was unreal. Man, that's awesome. What did, um, what did he end up aging at? Uh, I think he's 11. Okay. Wow. We were, we were debating between 11 and 12, but we're, we're pretty confident he was 11. There was one of those growth rings that looked to be fake. Mm. So what did, when you checked him in a fishing game, what'd they say? Well, actually they flew all of the horns out together and I wasn't on that plane. Oh, so I wasn't there for that, but I'm pretty sure it's 11. Gotcha. Okay. The story certainly doesn't end here. <laughs> you went up for a sheep hunt. That was the goal that obviously happened fast, but uh, you filled a couple of other tags and I don't know the timeline and all that. Like I've seen the pictures. I know what you killed, but yeah, keep, keep rolling with the story. We'll dive into some other kind of specific questions later, but how did this whole thing proceed? Well, we, we wake up on the fourth day and uh, they kind of suggested that Alex and I go to what they call the back 40, which is miles and miles away. But we got on some ATVs. We rode through a swamp. Um, took us about an hour and a half, two hours to get there. 
that we walked for a few miles coming some covering some ridges looking for caribou or bear didn't see anything but one caribou about two miles away so we jumped back on the four-wheelers rode back to camp got back about four o'clock and then alex got flown out and then i got flown out to a a lake they called shrek swamp um like you know this is a pretty good caribou spot and they told me to get a bear tag and a caribou tag when i came up just in case we finished early so we flew out to shrek swamp set up a bomb shelter um, and slept on cots and you pretty much wore your hip boots until you were getting into your cot it was so wet um even with the bomb shelter there was water running into it uh just because it was it was just crazy wet um so we slept there that night of the fourth night. And then the fifth day we packed up tents and three days of food. And we were going to go up to a ridge above us. That was about a mile and a half, two miles away and hunt for caribou and just spend our next few days up there. So we woke up early, ate some bagels and bacon, and then packed a bunch of mountain houses up to the top. Um, most of that was just breaking through willows. So it took a little longer than we thought it would, but we get to the top and there's caribou feeding maybe like 2000 yards away. And so we ended up spending most of our time in this big cut. Um, that was kind of a saddle between two valleys. It's probably 800 yards across and had 30 foot drop-offs on either side. So they dropped into it on the far side, heading our way. So we got to about 200 yards of the near drop off and they started trickling over the top. And when they were on the far side, we actually used my glass, my spotter at this point, which is what I was glad I brought it because we, we needed it there because Michael still had everything else out on the, on the uh, sheep mountain when we flew out, I think. So we were glassing and there's one bull with really good back scratchers and you know, when you haven't looked at caribou, I, it is so hard to judge them. I don't know what's a good caribou and what's not because they all look massive. Like there were a couple that were dinks that I'm like, those are good bulls. And he's like, those are barely mature bulls. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Their body size is so small that it's just, yeah, it's so disproportionate. Yeah. And so like he starts talking about shovels, bez, tops, back scratchers. And I'm like, I, you're not speaking English anymore. So I don't know what we're talking about here. So we, we kind of went over what, what was a good quality and a bad quality and some different things. And he's like, there's one out there with huge back scratchers. And he goes, I think he's probably the best bull out of these 60 caribou. So they fed up at, up that Ridge at about 200 yards and just started popping over. So we sat down, put our backpacks in front of us and, uh, they kept saying, you won't get to shoot the caribou you want. You just shoot the best one that's in the open. And so they were so, I guess they're used to seeing thousands. And so since there were only 60, um, he kind of stepped out into the open by himself. And I sent around at 200 and he just kind of hunched his back and stood there. So I shot three more times and he never moved. So I figured I was shooting over him or something. So I grabbed another round out of my bino harness, sent it his way and he dropped and, you know, we both high-fived and were kind of ecstatic and because he was a way bigger bull than I was hoping for also. So we start walking over to him and I'm telling Alex, like, I'm pretty sure I shot over him two or three times. And he's like, yeah, it's no big deal. And we get over to him and I wish I'd shot over him five times, but like I, the poor thing was destroyed. Like he just absorbed like all five rounds and just stood there. So I'd shot him in the chest and the liver and, you know, 
it was he was kind of a mess but either way we had the caribou down and so we spent the next like three hours cleaning them um and alex has guided quite a few bear hunts on kodiak and up there in the arctic and he he was telling me the difference in bears that the ones on kodiak have plenty of food have a longer season to eat. And so they're, they're a little bit easier to get along with. And he kept saying that the ones up here are pretty ornery. It's like, you kind of have to watch your back with the bears up here. They're just, he's like, they're small, but they're, a lot of them are starving. A lot of them aren't doing great. So you kind of need to just keep an eye out. And he had a 375 Ruger. So he put a round in his gun and I set my gun off to the side. And so we, we butchered for like three and a half hours. So we could just kept kept kind of watching the ridge line. He was like, you know, bears never come in on you while you're butchering a caribou, but you, you just have to be aware. So we're, we're talking about this, trying to figure out how we're going to shuttle meat and what we're going to do. And uh, these caribou kept coming over this cut bank at about 120 yards upwind of us. They dance around for a bit and then run off. And so I, I kept looking downwind of us, assuming that a wolf or a caribou would step or a bear would step out downwind and maybe start coming up to us. But um, all of a sudden out of my peripheral, I see, I see Brown where all the caribou had been stepping out. And so I just look up and there's a grizzly walking straight at us. And I said, bear, just like that. And it didn't reflect what I was trying to say. So <laughs> I yelled, bear. <laughs> So we, we both threw down what we had in our hands, dove for our guns and were drawn down on her. And she, when I first said that she was probably at 70 yards, um, cause she just slipped along this cut bank where we couldn't see her and just stepped over the top. So we're, we've got a dead caribou there. We're totally silhouetted on the skyline and we're standing there talking with guns in our hands and she never stopped walking towards us. Um, she just kept. I'm a pretty steady pace and they move a lot faster than they look like they're moving. Um, she wasn't running, but she was walking straight at us. And so I think the first thing, even not having looked at bears before, I was pretty confident it was a sow and Alex's first words were, we need to make sure she doesn't have cubs. So he took a few steps to the right to see down the cut bank to make sure they weren't trailing her. Um, and, you could pretty much see all the country behind her and there was no sign of cubs. So she's straight on. And I was pretty worried about my bullet selection at that point in time. Um, you know, six, five Creed more, I'm shooting, a an expand, a rapidly expanding bullet and she's closing in on us slowly. And so he said, just don't shoot her straight on. I was like, okay. So he starts yelling, Hey bear. And she doesn't do anything. She keeps walking at us. And so there's a kind of a little boulder at about 40 yards and she turns broadside right there at that boulder. So I shoot her right behind the shoulder. She drops immediately. And so I jack in another round and I said, should I shoot her again? And he goes, and shoot her again. So <laughs> I shot her again. She starts to get up and turn to the left so she's quartering on the opposite side. I shoot her with a third round. She doesn't seem to make any movement from that. She's still standing there on her paws. And then I fourth shot, I shoot her in the back of the neck and uh, she dropped. And I'm like, I'm out. And Alex is like, reload. <laughs> so I reload my gun. Um, and we just both kind of stand there for a few minutes looking around a little bit jittery. Um, 
And so we make a big loop around her and make sure there's no other bears or critters around. We get to about 15 yards from her and we, he threw rocks at her face for a couple minutes, just making sure she was down for the count. And we walked up to her and hit her with our guns a few times, making sure she was very dead. And then uh, it's like, well, that doesn't happen every day. <laughs> so we uh, went and grabbed the caribou horns because we were about to start packing out, took them over next to her, took a bunch of trophy pictures, and then spent like two hours skinning her out, um, which was an interesting process. Um, but all four rounds had hit her with the ELDX, not one of them exited. So I recovered my first shot, went right behind both shoulders, stopped at the skin. The other two shots quartering away on each side, stopped behind each shoulder. And then the fourth shot in the neck, I stopped in her neck. I mean, it broke her spinal column, but it never exited, which was a little sketchy, but um, he never had to shoot her with his gun, which he said he was about to if she'd gone over that lip. Um, but we were a little shaky after that. And we started making stupid comments like, well, what are the odds another bear steps out? And of course, then both of us reached over and grabbed our guns and pulled them a little closer. Um, <laughs> so we, we go ahead and start talking, you know, we there's no reason for us to stay up there, but we were trying to figure out if we could haul it out in one load. We're about two miles from the, from camp on the lake. So he took the skull, the hide of the bear and half the caribou. I took the other half of the caribou, the horns and the cape. And uh, we still got full camps and everything on our back. And so he gets up, kind of waddles over to me. And I'm like turtling hard on the ground. I cannot get off the ground <laughs> because of the horns. And uh, so he helps me up. We waddle about a hundred yards and he goes bear. And <laughs> there's a, a, a boar grizzly probably 400 yards away eating blueberries just over the ridge from us. And so he goes, well, I guess we're not spending the night up here. So we, uh, and we're not taking two loads. So we spent the next two hours waddling back down to camp through the swamp. It was terrible. Like it was, it was, I've packed out elk before and it was more weight than I'd carried with an elk. So I, I don't know. I don't know how much weight it was, but it was a stupid amount and uh, don't really care to do that again, but we got it all out of there, slept good that night. And on the sixth day got flown out and spent the next five days in camp, had the opportunity to fly out early, but didn't. So spent some days calling wolves, um, fished for Lakers and just helped out around camp processing meat. I tried my hand at caping and turning lips and stuff like that. And I'm, not super great at that, but, um, I, it was, the whole experience was over so fast. It was, it was just unreal. Like it, I, I kind of needed the next five days just to digest it and um, absorb it all, but it was all, I mean, the Tyrells are awesome. They've got an awesome operation and it was far more than I was ever hoping for. That's cool. You decided to stay in camp. I think 99 out of a hundred guys, you know, they're tagged out and they're done. Like, ah, get me out of here. I, w- I want to get back to a hamburger in a hotel room or something. No, I just, I just couldn't leave. Like it all happened so fast. And I was like, you know, it's, they offered for me to get out of there. And I was like, you know, if, if it's convenient for you guys to fly me out and things work out, like I'll, I'll leave, but I, you know, I'm really content being here in camp doing stuff. And so 
it just worked out for me to stay. And uh, I'm, I'm just really glad I did. I mean, we, we fished quite a bit, caught some Lakers, ate those in the evenings, ate a lot of caribou and sheep ribs. Um, I don't know. It was awesome. That's cool. It's a jam-packed uh, trip there that first seven days. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was tagged out by like two o'clock on day five and I don't know. It's just, it seemed nuts. I just, yeah. What um, you mentioned earlier, the sheep horns flying out separate. I'm just curious, like with now a sheep, a caribou, a bear, and you know, you not going up there planning on having all three of those. Can you talk a bit about like logistics and plans for getting all that home or what, what's going on with all that? So I'm, I can't remember if it's the bear hide or the bear skull needed to be sealed by Alaska fishing game. Um, the horns needed sealed for the sheep. And so they, they kind of took a separate flight with all of the sheep that they killed to that point And, um, the bears they killed to that point, they took a flight specifically to Alaska fishing game to check in all the animals. So we kept all of the meat in camp. They had a couple of freezers running on generators. So I helped process meat. We vacuum sealed it threw it in the freezers. And I, I took, cause we ate quite a bit of caribou in those next five days. I took two, two fish boxes home full of meat uh, when I flew back. And then there's a, a guy that's going to ship the uh, horns and capes to uh, whoever I decide to send them to. What did you think of the caribou meat? It is ridiculously close to whitetail. I, it's pretty I mean, good, isn't it? It's really yeah, good, it's, yeah. yeah, I have no issues with it. Um, I thought it was good. I mean, we cooked it a bunch of different ways and, you know, I just kept thinking it was, it was very similar to whitetail. Like you eat antelope or you eat elk and they seem fairly different, but, um, it was in my mind, it was rather close. Uh, to dive into a couple points, you'd sent some notes over to me before, uh, this conversation. One was on your process of traveling with your firearm and like TSA locks and whatnot. And, uh, I've gone through that and actually just semi-recently put out some information about that, but can you elaborate on what your experiences were there and then kind of what you learned about that process? Yeah, I have kind of a cheap gun case. I, I took your advice to take all the padding out and just use my gun case and clothes and uh, put all my knives and stuff in there. Um, I, it has two locks on my gun case and two eyelets. So I put two TSA locks on the eyelets and then I locked the case with keys, wrote my phone number and name on it and gave it to TSA at the airport here locally. I then they're like, you're go ahead. You're fine to go ahead and go through security. And I said, well, I'll wait for a bit just in case they can't get into it. And they're like, ah, we can pretty much get into whatever. It's like, okay, I'll still wait. So after about eight minutes, she came out and said, the locks on my case were not TSA locks. So I gave her the keys. She went and checked my stuff brought the keys back to me, said, you'll need to do this when you fly out of Alaska on your way back. Um, so everything was fine. I just, uh, I guess knowing whether your locks are TSA or not, she did tell me it was good that I locked it because the, my, my eyelet locks were not tight enough to keep the case from opening so much that you could get in and out of it. They were kind of the loose wire locks. Mm -hmm. Um, and she's like, you should probably use the metal ones that are very tight. And uh, then you really won't have to manually lock this. So I had the opposite experience flying out of Alaska. I handed them my gun case. I'm like, hey, uh, you're probably going to need my keys. And they're like, we're not going to need your keys. 
I was like, well, you, you can't unlock this. And they're like, we're not going to unlock this. Like, it's fine. You're leaving. We don't really care. So it's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, sounds good. And got on the plane. Very different experience up there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What else? I um, We touched on some of the, I think, the notes you sent over, but like, what are some of the other points, whether it's in the gear notes you sent or just kind of like lessons learned from the whole trip? Man, I'm... I, I'm sure you're still even processing it all. Yeah. I mean, I, people kept coming in and out of camp while I was there. There weren't a ton of hunters, but you know, I, I pretty much visited with all of them about their experience and just how drastically different everyone's was like, I mean, some guys were stuck on the mountain in the fog for days on end. Other people were just not, you know, they're legal sheep. They were seen, but they weren't able to get on them as quickly. Um, we never really used our Crocs to cross any creeks, but another guy, he did, and he didn't have the strapping ones. And so they got sucked down the river pretty quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was, that was one of those things that stuck out in my mind. Um, I should have replaced the battery in my rangefinder. It, I could not get a range past like 50 yards with it. And, uh, so we used our guides range finder, um, I'm pretty sure it was the battery, but I, I still have to work on that a little bit. Um, but that was just a, something I should have changed out before I got there. Um, I had some outdoor research gaiters and I didn't really wear them that much, but the, the tongue of the belt that goes under your boot, those snapped off, like sheared off. And so they were pretty much worthless. Um, wow. Yeah. Those are going to be pretty, pretty tough, solid gaiters. Yeah. I was talking to uh, some of the guys in camp and they're like, yeah, if they fail, that's pretty much normally what happens. I'm like, I mean, I haven't put that many miles on these gators and it is a pretty solid failure. So that was a little frustrating. I'll probably reach out to them and see if they'll send me another pair because I can't imagine I've put more than 20 miles on them. Yeah. Yeah. Not that it helps when you're in the Brooks range, but I do think they have a good warranty on that. Okay. Um, Trekking poles were money. Uh, And then taking off that rubber tip and using the, the carbide tip when you're going through boulder fields covered in that slick black lichen stuff that's soaking wet, like we slipped and slide all over the boulder fields. And so just having that trekking pole there to kind of center you was, was kind of a big deal. One thing, um, I was just looking over your notes. One thing that, um, uh, somewhat surprised me a little bit, like you talked about water not being too common and that you should have brought a bigger bladder. Yeah. So, I had a, my Nalgene and a two liter bladder. And then the other two guys both had two Nalgene's and Alex had a six liter, like the MSR bladder. So the, I think some of the other hunters in camp were in a little wetter spots where they were at, or they were gaining and losing elevation. So the the way it was talked about was water wasn't going to be a huge issue where I was at, I think we only ever came across one seep that we could actually drink out of as we were running ridges. And so, you know, it's, it's full of tundra by the time it's in your bottle, but it was good water. Um, but I probably should have had the option to carry five or six liters with me because had we not seen those sheep, we would have been up there without water for a couple of days. Um, and I know that that's what happened to a few other hunters is that they were, they were on the peaks for a long period of time in the clouds without water. And, uh, that's not a, not a good situation to be in. Uh, we just lucked out and 
were able to, we were losing our elevation and gaining water at the bottoms and then going back to the top. So it wasn't too big of a deal for us. You mentioned rain a few times. Um, what rain gear did you end up using? I used the first light seek rain gear and the coat did really well for me. I ripped the pants up pretty good. I, you know, it was one of those things I never felt like I was going through anything too brushy or too, too bad, but I got rips around my shins and the butt ripped out on them pretty good. So <laughs> That's, uh, you have a bad luck, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just between the gators, gators and, and seek. Yeah. Seek. I mean, those yeah. are both very things I would highly recommend. I mean, the, it's Steve, my only you, complaint I, with this. You hesitated. You go, those are both very, and I think you're going to say bomb proof, but he proved your point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're very, yeah, they're very uh, good stuff. It's, yeah. I mean, Mike, if I had a issue with seek, it'd be that they're too heavy, not too light and going to rip. Yeah. I just don't know if I sat down on a rock wrong and started a rip in them or if I, I really don't know how I did it because I haven't used them that heavily before. Um, but I mean, they were good outside of that. And uh, I maybe should have just gone with something fully rubber too, because I don't know about your hunt, Mark, but, or Steve, but it rained every day, like, and it rained probably half the days. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it seemed like 50% of the time we were in the rain, in our rain gear. And at some point, like, even with only being on the mountain for three days for the sheep, it was pretty saturated. Like I was, I was sleeping my clothes dry every night because I was so wet. Yeah. I think I brought, um, we talked about this on our recap. I brought the Canis, their rain gear and a similar experience. It was just like, it was awesome for day one. And then by day three, um, just the comment, like it's just soaking wet. You roll it up, you throw it in your pack. Nothing ever dries out. It starts raining again. You pull it back out by the end of it. Everything just starts getting, it's just wet inside and out. Like it's still, you know, you still put the jacket on and it's raining. It keeps, you know, the moisture off of you, but it's still, everything's just wet and it starts getting damp and you're just kind of always damp. There's just no way around it. Do you use a dry bag when you're up there? I did. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I used, I asked you guys for a bigger pack and, or a bigger bag. So I use that bigger bag with a smaller dry bag that you sell. And so I stuffed all my rain gear <clears throat> and food around that inside of the main, main mm-hmm. part of the pack. And for me, that worked, that was money. Cause yeah. I could keep all my wet stuff with me, not, you know, dragging outside of the pack. Mm-hmm. Um, but also keep all my, my main clothes and my down bag dry. Yeah. I didn't say everything that needed to stay dry was in the dry bag. Um, but again, even that, even your sleeping bag, it's like you wake up on day three, it's completely damp, you know, but then and you're throwing it down in this dry bag where it's just going to sit in there and not has no chance to dry out or do anything, but it's just, yeah, there's, I think it's just unavoidable. And Mark, I think you're going to get, you know, full facial (laughs) with uh, (laughs) coming up on your goat hunt here, you know, like where it's just, it's that times 10, right? Like it's, uh, just wet. Yeah. But that part of that's just, I think you can do your best to manage things and just be smart, but just ultimately it comes down to like, you're just kind of going to be uncomfortable and miserable a little bit, no matter what you do. You mentioned too, speaking of moisture and rain, Joseph, like some stuff you realized on shelter and types of shelter with that. Can you elaborate there? Yeah. So I, I've always ran a a Nemo Hornet two man tent, 
which is a tent. Then there's the poles over the top. And then you have a separate rain fly that you pitch over the top of that. Um, the, the shelters they were using were the tarp tent rainbow twos. And that is just a center pole with a little bracing pole in the middle. And all of that is outside of the main tent. There's no separate pieces. It's just the tent. And we were always setting up our tents in an absolute downpour, but everything on the inside of the tent stayed dry because your vet, you know, your, your rain fly is not separate. And mm -hmm. so that was one of those things I, I thought was vastly superior to my personal tent was that it, um, my tent would have been soaked on the inside by the time I had everything pitched, or at least would have gotten some water inside of it. Um, so I just appreciated uh, that style of tent where the rain fly is kind of built in. Yeah. 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 And there are some where they're separate, but you can like some on Hillberg's, you can set up the pole structure with the fly and then attach the inner. Um, so just for like listeners for context, but yeah, I, I do agree that if you kind of get that all in one approach, like a tarp tent, uh, and there's many others, but, um, yeah, just keep that in mind. If you're heading to a, a very wet environment where it's likely to set up in the rain, cause doing that with a, a Hornet is not ideal. And I've seen, I've seen some people, I think there's some like slight modifications you can make to set up a Hornet in the manner we just described, but out of the box, that's not easy to do. And we never use the bivvies that we brought because we were out of there so fast. But I, I had a probably the lightest weight or a bivy I could get, which since we didn't use it was great. But there were multiple times where we were, there were places we, you could have camped um, that were flat spots that had I used that, I just don't know how it would have stayed dry. Like it was, I felt like I probably should have brought a thicker, more bomb proof bivy because the material was so thin and like everything was so saturated. It was like, you almost wanted a solid piece of rubber between you and the ground where we were at. I can see that. Tyler and I had the same thought of, of I've got a, uh, it's an old Jimmy's tarps bivy that it's, it's not, it's only good as a, as a bivy sack on its own. If it's clear skies, right. It's, it's all mesh and stuff like that, but it's like having the option of having like a full Gore-Tex style bivy that you could just sleep on the side of the mountain in a pinch. I think it'd be a valuable tool to, to add to your gear. Man, what a, like, it's easy to throw throw around words like this, Joseph, but in this case, I think it's fully justified. Like, what a trip of a lifetime. Yeah, I I mean, even they were saying that because, like, <clears throat> when Luke got to the strip, and we, I mean, they were, I was telling them my, my goal was to shoot a legal ram and just euro it. Like, I figured, you know, just something full curl. If we got one, we just euro the ram, you know, possibly pack out the, the cape or whatever and sell it but like just let's just euro the ram so we're we're standing over the sheep and like they're like so who's carrying out the full body cape and i'm like what are we talking about and they're like you have to full body mount this sheep he's so big you got to full body mount him and i'm like i don't have a big house like we live in a tiny house we can't fit i was like i'm just gonna euro him and they thought that was a travesty so they, they're like, well, we're at least packing out the Cape. It's worth enough money. Like we'll pack that out. And uh, I was like, okay, well, we'll pack out the Cape. And so we got to the airstrip and I'm like, yeah, I'll probably mount him. Cause like they, they were saying he was a really big Ram. I, I still, I'm just tickled pink with him. I don't know how big he is, but um, you know, it's one of those things. It was the same thing with the caribou and the bear. It's just like, let's just get the euros and do the hides. And like, it's, it's a pretty, I'm, I'm more here for the experience than for the, 
uh, quote unquote trophy. Cause like, I just want to be able to hold the sheep horns in my hands. So they were, they were telling me to do the duplicate thing. So I'm, I'm still kind of looking into that, but everything about the trip, just how fast it happened, how beautiful everything was, um, all the stuff we shot and just how it all went down was just more than I, more than I could have ever hoped for. Like it was, I just, yeah. And I can't say enough good things about the, the operation up there. They just, they do a great job. And what was the name of the operation? Tyrell's trails. Tyrell's trails. Cool. Man, I feel like I could ask you a bunch more questions. We could talk for another hour, but um, yeah, we're coming up on time here. Just, yeah, it's, it's going to be cool. I, I even want to chat to you again, maybe not on the podcast, but just like, I know it's just still pretty fresh and like, there's still a lot to process, but man, stay in touch. And it's uh it's a cool trip. It'll be cool to see your mount come together and all that. So congrats again. And um, yeah, just thanks for sharing the whole before and after with us now. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you guys for reaching out and thanks for getting me the packs and stuff so quick and being good on responses. I, I appreciate how you guys run your business and how you guys do things. And so it's um, just a awesome to even be on the podcast. I was telling my wife uh, after we did the last recording that like, I don't think they'll post it because I kept like listening to them talk like I normally do and not talking. Uh, <laughs> so I'm used to listening to the podcast. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't think they'll actually... There. Yeah, I did like twice. I was like, man, are they waiting for me to talk? Because I, I keep listening to what they're saying. And so anyway, <laughs> I appreciate you guys. Yeah, no, thank you. Congrats on the hunt, man. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap on a great hunting story. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Throughout the fall, we will have more of these after the hunt episodes. Even if you weren't part of the Before the Hunt series, if you have a hunting story or lesson learned from this fall, reach out and tell us about it. We'd love to hear from you, hear how your hunts went, and maybe hear how we could help you on your future hunting endeavors. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.